0: Hey, turn your Bibles, please, to Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, what are we on? Oh, sorry, 9 verse 11, sorry, chapter 9 verse 11, thank you, chapter 9 verse 11, we continue our study of Hebrews, Um, we picked it back up after the summer, and we're going to steam on ahead to the end. So here we are, picking up in chapter 9 verse 11, and this is God's Word. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? And let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you probably remember the story of uh, Samuel. You know, Saul, King Saul is rejected by God, and uh, Samuel is sent to uh, replace Saul, and he's sent to this guy named Jesse, um, and uh, Jesse's got a bunch of sons, and so he goes to Jesse, and uh, they bring out this son, and the son's name is Eliab, And Samuel the prophet sees this son of Jesse, Eliab, and he's like, oh, man, that's definitely the guy, because he could play Thor in a movie, you know? He looks fantastic, very kingly, big guy, and um, uh, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, thinks Samuel, okay? I'm looking at the book of Samuel right now. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now that's the same kind of thing that Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. In Matthew 5, this will be familiar to most of you. Jesus says, "You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery." Oh, yes, I heard that. I heard this. that's not good to commit adultery. That's a sin, Jesus. Yep. And, but Jesus says, but I say to you, you know, rightfully interpreting the, uh, interpreting the original intent of the law, Jesus says, I say to you, heard, heard you're not supposed to commit adultery? Oh, yeah, yes, I haven't physically committed adultery. Well, but Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And listen, that can be applied to all kinds of things too. I mean, if you're a woman, you can look lustfully at a man. And also, if you're a woman, you can look uh, at someone else's situation or a man can look at someone else's situation and say, ooh, look at that marriage. Ooh, look at those other people. Ooh, look at that house. Ooh, if I had that guy, I would be in that car right now. Wouldn't that be an awesome life if I were that? What do you think that is, except a transgression upon a one flesh union? That's exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, God looks on the hearts. He just doesn't see the external. He just doesn't see external physical restraints. He looks on the thoughts and intentions and motives of the heart. It goes on to say, too, uh, actually, he backs up a little bit. He says, Jesus, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, angry with his brother, uh, insults, says, you fool, and so on, uh, is doing the same kind of thing in his heart. The point, again, is that God looks on the heart. It's not that you fool is a magic uh, incantation to get you into hell. It is the point is that God looks on the heart. He sees past the externals. And the Bible's quite clear throughout that that's the way God operates. He's got all the knowledge. He's got all the power. He's sovereign over all. There's no part of creation over which he is fuzzy. He's never surprised. And God peers all the way on in and sees the movie of your life God looks on the heart. And it doesn't matter what your standing is professionally or financially or personally or maritally or whatever. God peers all the way in and he looks on the heart. It doesn't matter how clever you are in pulling off a persona. And so here's the big point today. Here's the idea, I think, per the passage. I'm not just manufacturing that. I think what the passage would love for us to process is this idea that God looks on the hearts. And rescues the heart. He sees it. He understands it all, and yet he loves sinners anyway and sent a savior to win them. And a better way to say that might be that the infinite God, infinitely looks upon the heart and then rescues anyway. He knows all the secret things inside, and and uh, yet even with the full force of his omniscience and his infinite justice, he still. Um, um, he still comes in and solves a cosmic problem. And really that's why it is a cosmic problem is because you've got this infinite God weighing in with all of his perfect wisdom and he sees all this. Uh, It's a cosmic problem, immense, never ending. And so um, that puts a, a sinner at eternal odds with God and that requires quite a big solution. All right, well, here's the good news. God looks on the heart, and rescues the heart, and here's our first point today: superiority to signs. Now, if you look at verse 11, um, be patient with me. Uh, let's look at it together. But okay, we got to stop. I know you probably get annoyed by that, but let me tell you, this is gigantic. Um, let, let, let me let me read the whole little phrase there. But when Christ appeared, now is it gigantic? I mean, something's come before that, you know, some system was in place, some was, something was the norm. Um, um, there was something presumably, uh, there was some kind of really big reality if it then says, but when Christ appeared, I mean, whatever comes beforehand has got to be huge. Such and such was the reality, but when Christ appeared, wow, everything's different now. That's a giant statement, and we ought to pause on that with with uh, great reverence and fear. Now, I'm going to direct you to the Old Testament. So, if you would keep your finger where you are and uh, go to the book of Numbers, or the book of Numbers, verse ni- uh, chapter 19. So, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, um, chapter 19. To understand our passage, we have got to look at this and uh, just do a little bit of a uh, little bit of groundwork. So while you find that, I'm just going to start reading because there's a lot we got to kind of go through. The Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, and he says, uh, this is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Here it is. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish. Now, that's like saying, hey, America, um, the winner of the Mid-South Fair, best heifer, and the southeast fair and the northwest fair and all the fairs of all the fairs, pick out the best heifer of all the fairs. I want you to pick out the best heifer and not without a, without a without a blemish on it. Okay, so not some heifer with a weird lump or a strange or whatever, and it and it also uh, has has to never have had a yoke on it. All right, so don't bring me some heifer that's been, you know, worn out and it's plowed many a field and it's come limping in and you're like, oh, that old thing, it's about to croak anyway, let's give it to God. No, 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 no. I want have Israel bring me a red heifer without defect in which there is no blemish on which a yoke has never come. Verse three, and you shall give it to Eliezer, the priest. It shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. Gross, right? Wow. Mm, Blood, apocalypse now, wow. And um, Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Blood. And uh, the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its skin, flesh, blood with its dung, wow, shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw that in the fire too. And then in verse seven, the priest shall wash his clothes, bathe his body, and afterward he may come into the camp, but the priest shall be ceremonially unclean until evening. Now, There's another guy, the one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water shall be unclean till evening. And a man who is clean, another guy, shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, deposit them outside the camp and put them in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It's a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. This shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. All right, that's strange. That's weird, 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 isn't it, okay? So if you're looking at this and you're going, wow, that's such a different culture, and this, uh, how are we supposed to understand that, and is this some kind of like, uh, is this uh, some old piece of weird literature, like mythology or Homer's Iliad or something like, what, what is all this, and what is it supposed to mean? Well, if there's anything that we might understand here, I think you could say, hmm, Um It seems like, if you're going to try to interpret this, that being either clean or unclean are very important categories in the mind of God. Might you say that? If the Lord's giving this instruction, which is saying the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, said this is the statute that the Lord has commanded, this is what I want to have happen. And you got a guy that does this function, and then he's got to change his clothes and clean off, and he's ceremonially unclean till that night. And then you got another guy who does something, and he's got to do the same thing, change his clothes and clean, bathe, he's ceremonially unclean. you got another guy who does it. It's like clean, unclean, clean, unclean. Hey, I'm kind of getting it. Um, then there's this thing that goes on in verse 11, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days. He shall clean himself with water, and on the third day and so on, he'll be clean, Uh, and and it goes on and on. Whoever touches a dead person uh, uh, and doesn't cleanse himself defies the tabernacle of the Lord. Again, you get this idea that that God is trying to communicate that either clean or unclean is very important to me, the sovereign Lord, all right? It goes on to say in verse 17, and this will help us with our passage. For the unclean, if somebody touches dead, dead person, uh, for the unclean they, t- they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. So you remember that perfect heifer? And remember all the stuff that happened? And remember the ashes were put in a clean place outside the camp, all right? If a person touches a dead body, they would take some of those ashes, put it in some water, they put it on the person, put it on their stuff, and uh, they, would, um, th- they would be cleansed by that, okay? In short. Now we look at that again it seems so bizarre. It seems so strange. But, you know, if you were going to communicate to people over thousands of years, people who couldn't conceive a computer chip or a car or something that flies through the air, if you were going to communicate to all different kinds of culture, no matter where they came from, and whatever, um, this seems to me like it would be a very easy way to do it. Hey, God cares about Whether something's clean or not clean, that has very much to do with those people being brought into his presence. Now, uh, if we go back to our passage, go back to Hebrews, all of a sudden, this is going to pop off the page at you. Look at verse uh, 13. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is Jewish. He's writing to people who are Jewish, and they know their Jewish Bible. And so they would go, ah, you're talking about numbers when he says in verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons, that's people who've touched a dead body, with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So a parallel being made that is going to just ring in the minds of the reader immediately. We read that and we're like, heifer, goats, well, that's weird. But for the Jewish reader, they're going, I know what you're saying. You're saying that there was that temporary situation back there that would render a person clean or unclean when it comes to approaching God, okay, it. Again, it's like being clunked on the head with an iron skillet that clean and unclean is important to God. And here they're saying, it's saying, the writer's saying, wait a minute, if that uh, will make a person ceremonially clean or unclean, think about what the blood of Christ, who is himself the unblemished sacrifice, who is himself the, the, the carrier out of priestly function, think what that will do for you. Think of the permanence of that situation. All right, so the answer, when we, when we go, what does it mean, but when Christ appeared? Uh, that question, what is, what's the but what? That's the but what. The but what is there was a system in place that was only temporary, that was pointing the way to something that was permanent, and Jesus is the thing that's permanent. The, the former thing couldn't um, secure an eternal redemption, which it says at the end of verse 12 couldn't do that. The former thing couldn't, um, it says in the verse, at the end of verse 14, purify our conscience. In other words, it couldn't make us clean both inside and eternally. And so now we've got a setting to understand the star of the show, right? So back to verse 11, but when Christ appeared, it's all about Christ, but when Christ appeared as high priest Of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Um, Now, this, again, this but with Christ, we have to stop again, uh, because there's something of great import. You know, when when we read that, but when Christ appeared, we go, oh yeah, I know who that is, it's Jesus. Yeah, Christ, Jesus, synonyms. It's the same person, it is, but they're not synonyms. I mean, you do realize that uh, their names weren't Joseph and Mary Christ. And it wasn't the Christ family down on Magnolia Street. I mean, that is not their last name. Um, Jesus' name is Jesus. I mean, the the angel comes and uh, says, uh, his name shall be Jesus. And so they name him Jesus. Um, And listen, in, in this letter, the letter of the Hebrews, lots of terms are used for the Lord Jesus. Here they are. Jesus, Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord, the Son. And other Bible passages speak in, in this way too, particularly of the Christ. All right? Sub 2 and Acts 4 uh, use the word anointed. To refer to Jesus, he is the Lord's anointed. Um, John 30, 31 refers to Jesus as the Christ. John 6, that Christ. Acts 9, very Christ. Luke 2, the Lord's Christ. Luke 9, the Christ of God. So Jesus is his name. Christ is his office. Christ is an official designation of one being anointed Anointed by God to carry out something. He is the Christ. Um, And so, um, it's not a last name, it's a redemptive title. um, Messiah, Anointed One, Christ. Such a person, ladies and gentlemen, was forecasted throughout the Old Testament. Um, the anointed one is gonna come, the Messiah is gonna come. There there are these things that point forward in the Old Testament. Such a person had been promised, but Christ's appearance as high priest here then, as the Christ, the one, the one who goes into the holy place, the one who uh, makes purification of conscience, the one who spills the blood, the one, that means he's the last one He's the last one. Everything's fulfilled and met in Christ. The Christ. Jesus, the Christ. Now, one more thing on this this point before we speed on through in verse 11. But when the Christ, but when Christ appeared as high priest. Man, high priest, that's such a big thing. Uh, That would be such a big thing for the original readers to hear, that he would be high priest, because that's not what they expected the Messiah to be. They expected the Messiah um, to knock out the bad rulers. They expected that. They thought he's going to come on in and knock out the bad guys. And uh, indeed, that's what happened uh, at the end of Jesus' life. They thought he was going to be some kind of earthly ruler, and he wasn't. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom. He came to set up a spiritual kingdom, All right, so they expected someone who was going to knock out the bad guys, uh, who was going to stack up the heavens in proper order and make things right. They expected that. They expected getting the people, Israel, back into a place of of respect. They expected that. But what they didn't expect was a humiliated Lord. They didn't expect someone who was going to himself be the sacrifice and himself be high priest. That would have been a shocker. But that's exactly who this Jesus is. Uh, and by the way, that's still the single most difficult thing for um, a Jewish person to accept, that in the Trinity, that Jesus would be a humiliated and exalted Lord. That, that's, that's shocking uh, to the Jewish hear, uh, hearer. But earnest seeker, I ask you, what was the sacrificial system for? I mean, what was all that for? Um, I'll give you an application. And uh, I know they're not in there because I already saw them in the service. Um, which, by the way, I always know when you're not here because I see. You know, I do see you over there too. Um, but uh, anyway, so uh, uh, Kevin Weeters and Melinda are in the service right now. But afterward, Melinda, uh, Melinda Weeters, M E L Y, N D A, Melinda, um, came up to me and she she asked a very interesting question. It's an interesting question. It's kind of a quirky question, but there's a lot to it also. She comes up and she said, "Well, you remember we were talking about the the." holy place and then the most holy place. You know, the holy of holies, the most holy place where the high priest could only go in once a year and he could only go in there with blood. And we were talking about how when Jesus said, it is finished and he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, thus opening up the most holy place, uh, uh, giving us a picture of access with Yahweh. I mean, it's just an amazing scene. Anyway, her her question was, until that happened, how did they clean... The most holy place. That's an interesting question, isn't it? How do they clean it? Um, And uh, you know, and and, you know, more than just cobwebs. um, There's there's lots of blood in there. All right. So, uh, quick answer. Uh, When it was the tabernacle, and it was a was a temporary function, temporary uh, structure. You know, it was a tent. They would the presence of the Lord would leave, and they'd strike it, and they'd very carefully, strictly move it, and set it back up again, And, and so. Tabernacle, yeah, very, pretty easy to understand. When it became a permanent structure, the temple, uh, here's my answer. I don't know. Uh, probably they just didn't. I mean, not, not a lot went on in there, except once a year, something super-duper amazing went on in there, okay? But all that to say, that got our conversation going, and I, we were talking about blood, and uh, she's going, wow, blood and dried blood. And then you, we were talking about the sacrifices. I mean, people would bring sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, and they would be killed, and they would be killed, and they would be burned. And uh, so, I mean, it always, just think of the think of the volume of blood. It always smelled metallic in the air. And uh, there was something always burning, and it smelled like Corky's Plus entrails, you know, we're like, mm, that smells, mm, yeah, there's entrails in there too. I think, um, okay, so it always had a smell. It always had a look. There was always blood. And, you know, um, if you've ever been to Colorado, we've been there two times. We've spoken on the, youth, the, the senior high trip. And uh, let me tell you, it, it's, it's amazing that there are these pretty fast-moving rivers all over the place. You know why? Because when it snows up in the mountain and that snow melts, it's going somewhere. And it's going somewhere with force. I mean, that water's got to go somewhere. And I just, I remember thinking uh, of, of that when I was studying this, going, man, all that blood. I mean, you just know that it was visible. You could smell it. Um, it, was a, it was a part of things. Everybody saw it. Little kids weren't shielded from it. Uh, it was just a part of things, uh, this blood. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, th- th- this is a good entree to the gospel. I mean, they're seeing Blood, blood, blood. They're seeing activity day after day after day after day, and they're going, wow, look at this. Blood, I mean, life is spilled out. Um, separation, this, this issue of cleanliness between God and man is a big thing. Uh, we can't approach him without Blood. And it goes on and on, day after day. This activity must keep going on. So it's not a permanent activity. It's an ongoing thing that must be maintained. Enter the Christ who pays once for all. His blood is shed. His life is spilled. He's the high priest who now has access to God and enters into the holy place. The ultimate holy place, the throne room of God, his, his is the one that secures the work, and there's no more sacrificial system needed. There's no more penance that need to be paid. Well, let me just give you some penance to pay. No penance to pay. No, no priestly services needed anymore. And I've told you about this uh, yarmulke thing before, right? Um, because there are like Muslims uh, where the temple is and everything, and they can't really do the sacrificial system anymore. And it's probably not culturally correct. It's certainly not vegan and all that business. You know what this thing is for? Well, since we don't have the sacrificial system anymore, we'll put on a beanie uh, as a covering that it at least acknowledges that we need a covering between us and Yahweh. Hey, good intent. But do you think a hat's going to cover it? I mean, it's, it's sweet as all get out. But uh, the life of a thing is in the blood. And uh, it, that, that's the sin payment. And the gospel message is that Jesus Christ paid the sin payment. He spilled his own blood by virtue of his righteous life that the sinner, us, could be found not guilty. Not just sin looked over, but not guilty. That's the gospel message. That's why Jesus died on the cross. That is what we believe in. Not just, I believe in Jesus, that he existed. I believe he paid the sin debt, my sin debt, once forever. That's the gospel. All right, second point. Power to cleanse. This is quite encouraging. Um, As we discussed last time, it's this issue uh, that says in verse 14, um, purifying uh, the conscience. Um, You know, uh, you've got... um, Oh, you've got, uh, in verse 13, the, the mention of defiled persons. That's that's a strong word, isn't it? Defiled persons um, that, that need purification of the flesh. Um, those refer to outward, old covenant things, right? That thing that we re- read about in Numbers. Um, and the scripture writer makes a contrast between purification of the flesh for ceremonial cleanliness and purification of the conscience, finding the very center of a human being and humankind. And um, what this means is that God finds the deepest point of us, our deepest need, and he meets it. He meets it. Um, He saves us holistically and eternally. He even saves our conscience. Um, Look at verse 12. Um, Jesus entered once for all, into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats, but by his own blood. Now, that, that phrase, he entered once for all into the holy places, let's just kind of get something out of the way. You don't, to, you don't have to get tangled up in theological cobwebs and go, ooh, once for all, once for all. Uh, I'm, I'm confused by that. I mean, what did, what did, what did Christ accomplish on the cross? Does it, did he accomplish giving everyone a shot? Or did he accomplish saving specific people with names on his mind? I mean, do you believe? I love doing this in a room full of people. I've done it for years. Do you believe that Jesus died with your name on his mind? I mean, there's not a person in the room that doesn't go, well, now you're trapped. (laughs) He either did that or he did it just to kind of give everybody a shot. Which is it? Well, um, I'll tell you it doesn't necessarily mean that it's just to give everybody a shot. Uh, if people would just get their act together uh, and, and, you know, exercise some good judgment uh, then they, and do better than people around them, then they can, can get on in. They would just do that. No, not at all. Um, because, listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So the Father is giving people to Jesus and Jesus will not cast them out. Here's another thing in John 10. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. All that to say... When Jesus, it says here that he entered the holy places, um, not not the the earthly tent, but the perfect one, it's meaning that he has gone to be in the presence of God. That's what it means. It means he's gone to be in the presence of God. He's entered once. It's not not that we're supposed to create a theological construct out of of, uh, the word all here. That's not even the point. The point is that he went in once. That means finally, that means you don't have to try hard to make God like you. You don't have to add anything to it. Uh, you don't have to add anything to the gospel. It is the Christ who has fulfilled all this. Uh, it is the Christ. It's the Messiah. It's the Redeemer, and he's done this thing once. Now, to apply this, it's kind of cool. I read, I read quite a number of commentaries on this, and I'm, I'm reading this one in particular and uh, I'm, on, I'm on this page here. I'm about to turn the page. I'm on this page, and I'm, I'm thinking, hmm. that reminds me of a particular song, Jesus, my great high priest. And it reminds me of a particular verse in that particular song. And I took my red pencil, as I always do. I, do, I, I go through red pencils like crazy all week long. And um, I uh, wrote on the top of the page, Jesus, my great high priest. And I wrote these lines from this particular verse from Jesus, my great high priest. I turned the page. I showed it to Tammy. I was, I was so ex- excited. Um, I turned the page, and the next thing he had quoted was that verse from that song. <laughs> is that cool? I was like, oh, booyah. Uh, but it was very cool. But here, here's, here what, here's, here's what it was. And I, we've sung this a million times. I've sung it a million times. His powerful blood did once atone And now it pleads before the throne. His powerful blood did once atone. That's all it ever takes. And guess what? It's not just a thing that happened in history. Now we can move on. It happened once and finally. And now it has bearing. Now. Now and forever, there's this forever implication. We enjoy it now, but it speaks to our future um, situation as well. The saving work has been accomplished, but it's moving along toward completion. And uh, in that, it's always, always for our best. You know, um, when, when Jesus is born and uh, the angels come, they got a message. And uh, here's the message. An angel says, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is, what? Christ, that's right. The next time you hear that, and when Christmas rolls around and you watch Peanuts, and you hear, Christ the Lord. Don't just think, oh, that's Jesus. It is. But think, it's the Christ. I mean, the angels come when Jesus is born, they say, that's the Christ. He's not going to grow up into some great leader and, and, oh, yay, now he's somebody. That is the Christ. That is the one we've been waiting for, and he is the ultimate fulfillment, and once he shall pay, and that work shall be forever and continuing. By the way, Mary treasured up all those things in her heart, and so should we. I mean, to her was born the Christ, and to us was born into this world the Christ who would save Mary from her sins and save us from our sins and clean us up on the inside, really and forever. All right, last point, and uh, with this... uh, Oh, gosh, we got to scream on. Sorry, everybody, I... I'm too much fun. <laughs> um save to serve. I have to tune get two guitars. Save to serve. We'll be quick. Um, look at verse 14. Um it's this little thing that just shows up at the very end. It's it's so easy to miss. Um uh how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Um Well, shoot, we're out of time. I got to pick it up next week. But let, let me just say this. There's a, there's a priestly sense, um, to our living, um, uh, that produces works to this God. Um, there's a, there's a priestly idea here. Uh, Jesus, or excuse me, John in Revelation 1 says that we are priests to Jesus, God and Father. Uh, in Peter, uh, he says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood that we may proclaim. We've been saved from dead works to proclaim. Uh, Revelation 7, those who have washed their robes in the blood are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple, priestly function. Um, well, folks, um, l- l- let, me, let me just wrap it up um, by saying this. Um, Christ spilled his blood to get you. Christ spilled his blood to, uh, to fix you. And he has secured an eternal redemption. He has purified your conscience. And uh, looking on the heart, God is a rescuing Savior. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that uh, my ramblings haven't uh, stumped anybody. And um, I pray that I would have been hidden and that uh, your truth would be known, that uh, that the way you have operated through human history, as mysterious as it can be, at least shows us what you are like and what Jesus came to accomplish and what our great need was and what our great hope is in him, that he has come. He has come once and he is working uh, forever for our benefit in your glory. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.